You ever felt like you didn't have enough belief? Have you ever prayed for something and then it didn't happen and you wondered if it was your fault because you just didn't believe it enough? At seminary, I got to experience indirectly both ends of these types of prayers. A prayer where healing happened and a prayer where healing didn't happen. Had a professor one semester who was wheelchair bound, paralyzed because of a disease that had attacked his nervous system. Sometimes with this particular disease, you can, you can get um, movement back. But in the particular case of my professor, it didn't happen until a prayer session, an earnest prayer session happened with a woman of powerful faith. And from that very moment, he started to feel a tingling in his toes. And by the time I had him in the next semester, he was no longer in a wheelchair, and he was walking. And it was just amazing. Uh, my wife got to see him because the physical therapy department was helping him on his recovery, and they said, wow, the turnaround that he had, you just don't see it like that. Amen. The way he went from lack of total function to now getting it all the way back. Amazing miracle. There was another seminarian or a seminarian, a student of his, who was also paralyzed. And so we thought, let's have a, a season of prayer. Let's do an anointing service for him. Um, God answered and heard the prayers for my professor. What about for the student who also was in a wheelchair? Earnest prayers were made. Um, in fact, at the end, one of the students just felt so, a pastor felt so convinced that he needed to do this. And so he, he just said, you know, stand up, rise up in faith. And he, he proceeded to help this guy up to his feet and, and, and lead him around as an act of faith, as an act of belief, saying, God, I trust, I believe, I know. And we weren't sure. He thought maybe he felt something a little different in his legs, but in the end, he wasn't healed. So we had two people, one God. One was healed from his paralysis and the other wasn't. And, and sometimes you wonder, well, why didn't it happen? Was it my fault? We've already talked in our sermon series on prayer, people of prayer. We've talked about how there are a lot of reasons why God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we pray them, right? You remember some of those things we've looked at? Sometimes God has a different plan that we don't recognize. Sometimes God has a plan that it may not seem better to us in that moment, but in his permissive will or his perfect will, in the end, we'll look back and say, that's why, God. And we'll recognize. Uh, at other times, he's already answered the prayer, and we just didn't realize it. There are many reasons why we don't always get what we ask for. But today, I want to open up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9, because 
In the particular case of Mark 9, there was a reason why healing didn't come. But then it came a little while later. Mark chapter 9. What immediately precedes the story, we'll start in verse 14. What immediately comes before verse 14 is the story of the transfiguration. That's where Jesus went on top of the mountain and he took three disciples. What were their names? Peter, James, and John. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration and basically Jesus shape-shifted on top of the mountain. The Holy Spirit came down and instead of just being regular old Jesus, he was glorious, divine Jesus in all of his splendor and glory. And the disciples were just, it was too much for them. But there was a voice from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Moses and Elijah, who had been specially taken to heaven, were there. Peter, James, and John got to witness this. This was the, uh, the highlight of their lives up until that point. And then they come down off the mountain. And the scene couldn't be any different, any opposite from what they experienced on top of the mountain. On top of the mountain, it was heaven and God's glory and the, the, a, a glimpse into the future. And they come down off the mountain and we get to verse 14 and there's a crowd because things have gotten interesting and not in a good way. Look at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. The disciples were there, nine of them. There was a crowd and there were the religious scribes. And there was an argument going on. Verse 15. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, running to him, and they greeted him. Some have wondered if there was maybe a little bit of glow that was left on Jesus' face as they had come down off the mountain. Or perhaps it's just that they, they were so involved in the discussion that all of a sudden there's Jesus. And they were amazed. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? It's always interesting when Jesus asks questions. It's usually because he's trying to get people to think and draw out a response from them, not usually because he doesn't know the answer. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, a father. I brought my son to you, but you weren't here, Jesus. You were up on the mountain. He has a mute spirit. That means that the guy, his son, couldn't talk. Couldn't talk. 18. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Can you picture the scene of what's going on with this poor kid? He has these seizures. They're so violent, it throws him to the ground. He starts foaming at the mouth. His teeth are gnashing together. He can't talk. He can't express the anguish that he's going through. He becomes rigid. Now, some have looked at this and they have wondered if it was merely a superstition 
Uh, and this was actually just epileptic seizures that the boy was having. Um, and while it's true that sometimes in the Gospels and in the Bible, it's hard to tell the difference between what we today would diagnose as certain medical disorders versus um, something you could imagine a demon doing. Uh, but Jesus, when he interacts, he doesn't think that this is just only a medical thing. Jesus interacts with an actual demon here. Uh, in fact, it appears as though during the time of Christ, there was a lot of extra demonic activity, which makes sense because if you're the devil and you know that the most important moment of Earth's history is going to be happening, the most important human to ever walk the Earth is on the Earth, are you going to be just sitting back, doing nothing, doing less than your potential as the enemy of souls? Or are you going to be sending all of your angels to try and harass and get people off track and torment and do as much damage as you can? So it seems like the devil is doing that. Um, I think most of the times today when people are afflicted by things, it's simply medical challenges. Um, so if, if I see someone having a seizure, I'm not going to assume, oh, it's a demon. Uh, now, it could be, but most likely, it's just something medical. Uh, but it may be that there are spiritual things involved, and, and we could look into that. But um, we want to be careful that we don't accuse people of being demon-possessed. But at the same time, we have to realize that even Peter had Satan speak through him. When Jesus was saying, I'm about to go to the cross, and he's like, no, Lord, it's not going to be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Whether it's full-on possession or just using us in a brief moment, uh, we have to be very careful how we allow ourselves to be used. But this boy, he's demon-possessed, manifesting itself in just this brutal seizures and, and just a horrible life. As a parent, you can imagine how desperate you'd feel. You take your kid to all these doctors, nothing works. You can't find any sort of healing for your son. Finally, you hear about this miracle worker, Jesus, who can cast out demons, and so you bring your son to him, but then when you get there, he's not even around. It's just his disciples. But you've heard about them, because they've done miracles. Mark 6 Jesus sent out the disciples and they were casting out demons in the, in the cities and they came back with great joy after God had, Jesus had sent them out. But the disciples, they do their very best or what they thought was their best and the son is still afflicted. And so there's this argument going on. The Jews had exorcists. They practiced exorcism in Judaism. In fact, you remember the story in Acts chapter 19 where there were the seven sons of Sceva and there was these demons that they were trying to cast out and they were doing it in the name of Jesus, using in my name the name of Christ, but the demons, instead of being cast out, they beat up the seven sons of Sceva. There were exorcists, but the scribes they, they said, oh, we don't want to touch this one. Instead, they were perhaps mocking the disciples. 
the father is getting more and more desperate, more and more disappointed. And finally, verse 19, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear you? Bring him to me. The disciples often had to get a little bit of correction from Jesus. Not only that, but the scribes. They didn't believe that that Jesus could do these things. A lot of doubt in the multitudes as well. But the disciples had already cast out demons before. And the father had faith because he, he wouldn't have had faith if he hadn't have brought the son to Jesus. Verse 20, then he brought him to him and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Another episode. So Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood, he said. You get the sense that Uh, Jesus knows what he's going to be doing here. And he doesn't need this information about how long it's been going on. But Jesus wants it to be very clear to everybody who's in the crowd that this is going to be a total miracle. So that they won't say, oh, this was the only time it had ever happened. No, no, no. This has been going on ever since he was a little kid. He wants it to be clear. How long has this been going on? Verse 22 Father continues and said, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. How cruel is the devil? Cruel. This shows you the plan of Satan. What does he want to do to us? He wants to to hurt us before he kills us. You know, we don't see a lot of demonic activity in North America. It's not as obvious here. Uh, The devil works kind of secretly underneath uh, the radar, as it were. But if you've ever been to another country, a third world country, uh, and participated in church or, or evangelism, it's a lot more common to see some of these things. We were in the Dominican Republic, and my friend was preaching and there was a demon-possessed lady that started making all sorts of chaos in his meetings. Uh, This stuff is real. It's really real. And, but there was this battle because the lady wanted to give her life to Christ. The demon inside of her did not. And eventually she made a choice to be baptized. Well, on the day of her baptism, while she's in the baptistry, she's just normal mode, going into the baptistry, she gets in the water, and then all you-know-what breaks loose. And she's screaming, and she's yelling, and you can't control her. And the pastor, you know, they've seen this a lot, so they're not as terrified by it. Uh, It's a scary thing, but he did something smart. He kind of tripped her with his leg and dunked her under the water. And when she came up, she was just limp. Uh, And the demon was gone. I have a friend who works security uh, in a hospital. He was telling me about somebody, a young girl, sounded 
fully possessed. When the doctors and nurses were trying to work with her, they were afraid of her. And it took multiple people to restrain this girl. It seemed like she had uh, superhuman strength. Um, but they had to have someone there to, to guard her because you didn't know what she was going to do. Uh, this stuff happens in America, but overseas, a friend of mine was a missionary in Africa. He said we were building an Adventist hospital. Um, and the locals said to the team who was building the hospital, we need to cut down the palm trees because they use it in um, dark rituals. Uh, they said the locals who are into uh, demon worship, they fly around in baskets at nighttime and they land on top of the palm trees. That's their landing zone. I know this sounds crazy, but if you've been in the mission field, it's less and less crazy. Uh, so they cut down the palm trees because they didn't want any landing points near their Adventist hospital. Well, the next day, there was somebody that was dead on top of the stump. They'd come in for a landing, but the landing pad wasn't there, and they fell to their death, sadly. Uh, over in India, Anil Kanda, you guys, many of you know him, Adventist school over there, they play the words of Scripture 24-7 on speakers around their campus. And they do it because the devil doesn't like to be around the Bible. Uh, but sometimes there are these beings that appear as kids in the trees and they say to the students, go in the office and turn off the Bible. And they're trying to get the kids to sneak in there and turn it off because the devil doesn't like to be around positive things around Jesus and around. So I'm not saying these things to scare us, right? I'm just saying this is reality. But in North America, the devil just works undercover, and a lot of us don't even think that he exists, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. But this is what Satan wants to do to you, ultimately. If he gets a hold of you, slowly he wants to get the life out of you. He wants it to be painful. He wants to torment you. This is the devil's plan. How long has this been happening? From childhood. A desperate father. And so in the, the second half of verse 22, it says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus picks up on the father's words. He said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, sometimes we have misunderstood what these words mean. Or, or, or verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, and, and sometimes we think, well, okay, I'm going to go win the gold medal in the Olympics. Because I can do all things. Now, God could strengthen you to do that. But we need to make sure that we're understanding what he's calling us to do, right? And of course, God would never do something that's logically impossible. Like he, he would never make a, a married bachelor because that just doesn't make sense, right? A bachelor, that's somebody who is not married. A single person, you can't be married and single at the same time. And so Jesus is not uh, commenting so much on you need to have a certain level of belief and then all things are possible. He's, he's saying, and he's already told the disciples, 
that he can do all things. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so if God calls you to do something for him, it'll be possible. Like Moses, he grabbed that stick. God led him to the sea. He led him to to hold it above his head, or in the case when they crossed over the Jordan River, to walk into the river. Moses wasn't alive anymore at that point. But God can do anything, even if it's physically impossible. Should he have need of you to pray a prayer like that? He will answer it. He will answer it. Jesus, even himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he submitted his will to the fathers because Jesus knew above anybody else that God could take the cup away from him. Did Jesus believe that the Father could do it? Absolutely. Jesus himself said, I don't actually have to be on the cross. I could call down legions of angels and they would get me out of here instantly. So Jesus, in his prayer himself, he said, but not my will, but your will. So we have to read these verses and understand it's not just our bringing our faith to God, but it's also recognizing it has to be within God's will. In another place, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Part of the name is the character. Uh, It's being connected to Jesus. The seven sons of Sceva asked in Jesus' name for the demon to be cast out, but it didn't work because they had no relationship with Christ. We could talk more about that. But the father had belief, but he also recognized that he struggled too. He also recognized that he had some doubts. You know, Spurgeon, the great preacher, he said, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. Did you catch that? If you're out in the world and you have no belief in God, you don't realize you don't have belief. But when you start to get to know God, you realize, I believe, but I have need of growth. I want to believe and know God more. So immediately, verse 24, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We've talked in this sermon series how prayer is something where we come to God honestly. We admit where we're at. And Jesus saw the faith of this father, the sincere prayer of the father, and he said, that's all I need. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the child? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's kind of like they forgot where the power to cast out came from. They believed because they'd done it already. But they'd forgotten where the power came from. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He didn't want the crowd to get any bigger than it was. He wasn't trying to do this for show. He had compassion on the son. And so he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He's dead. A violent shaking and shuddering happened in this little kid. 
and then he was just absolutely still and calm afterwards, and people thought he died. Thanks, Jesus. Now he's dead. But Jesus reached down, the Bible says, and he picked him up, and he arose. And when he'd come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast him out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. The disciples apparently had forgotten that just because God had used them in the past, it wasn't a, a lifetime pass for all power. They had to stay connected. Like Peter walking on the water, when he took his eyes off Jesus, he started to sink. The disciples had had success in Christ's name before. They, they believed that it would be done, but they'd lost their connection with Jesus. I don't always understand why our prayers aren't answered, but when we come to God like the Father and we say, I believe, but I, I also struggle, Lord, help my unbelief. That's enough faith for God to move mountains if he wants to move mountains through you. But when we forget where the power comes from or when we take God's power for granted, it's easy for us to end up like those disciples. Much prayer and fasting. It takes great spiritual preparation to face the biggest battles in our life. If you're going to be preparing for a big physical event, uh, you wouldn't just grab a, a quick donut and be off and run 50 miles. I mean, maybe you could, but I couldn't. <laughs> Athletes that are getting ready for big feats of endurance, they prepare their body. They, they're eating carefully. They've thought it all out before the big event. Spiritually, we need to be prepared for the, the trials of life. And sometimes you realize there's going to be a bigger trial that day, so that means you need to spend extra time with the Lord. Extra time with Him. I want to read a paragraph and we'll look at a verse and then we're going to close out for today. I read this in the book Desire of Ages, commenting on this story. Some beautiful words here. It says this, In Christ, God has provided means for subduing every sinful trait and resisting every temptation, however strong. There's no temptation that we can't resist with God's power. Amen? But many feel that they lack faith, and therefore they remain away from Christ. They say, oh, I'm not like that person, so therefore I'm, uh, what good is it? That's not our attitude. That's not what our attitude's supposed to be. She says this, let these souls in their helpless unworthiness cast themselves upon the mercy of our compassionate Savior. Look not to self, but to Christ. Don't be trying to look at the gauge of your faith in your own life. Just look at Jesus. Remember what he's done? And ask him to do what he wants to do, needs to do. He who healed the sick and cast out the demons when he walked among men is the same mighty Redeemer today, Faith comes by the word of God. Then grasp his promise. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. 
John 6, 37. Cast yourself at his feet with the cry, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And then the final, uh, the final sentence, you can never perish while you do this. Never. Don't worry about the level of, of where you're at. Just focus on Jesus. He's the one that has already conquered Satan. Let his faith be big. Put your trust in his faith. I believe. Help my unbelief, Lord. Finally, let's close out with Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you've ever felt like you don't have enough faith, that's a good sign. It means you're not too confident in your own ability and your own connection to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If someone is the author of a book, that means I wrote it, right? If Sarah is the author of a book, that means that I wrote the book, right? No. Jaden, if Sarah's the author, then who wrote the book? She did. Okay. Are you sure? Okay. I could be the illustrator, he said. That's good. So if somebody's the author, that means they're the one that started it. And, and if they're the finisher, if she finishes the book, does that mean that I'm the one that finishes it myself? Why not? Because I didn't write it. So author and finisher of our faith, that means Jesus started us with faith and he's going to finish us. He put the faith that we have in us, he's going to grow it, and he's going to finish it. So don't worry about trying to measure your faith. Just focus on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Focus your eyes on the prize. Be honest with God in your prayers and trust that our loving Heavenly Father is able to do what He said He will do. And He's able to help us even if the prayer isn't answered like we hope. He's able to help us and make all things better someday. How many of you want to entrust your faith into Jesus' big faith? Let's pray. Dear God, we don't have it all figured out. We're not super saints, Lord. We're just common, everyday people. But we have you, Jesus, as our extraordinary, eternal, and all-powerful, all-believing Savior. We've seen what you've done in the past. We believe, based on your track record, that you're going to take uh, us to the finish line, however that looks, and that someday soon you'll make all things new in your heavenly kingdom. Keep us honest and keep us growing in you. Lord, you've started our faith. We pray that you will continue to grow it as we, 
spend time with you day by day. And Lord, we're looking forward to you finishing our faith someday. Keep us faithful. Keep us connected to you in Jesus' name. Let everybody say, Amen. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath. And will you see you soon?